Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now, Kathleen Buttle, an anthropology prof at the University of Manitoba. Kathleen, nice to have you on again. Hi, thanks very much. It's a pleasure yeah, thank to be you here. for thank you very much for doing this. I've I've set aside a bit of extra time because we've had you on a couple of times, so we've run out of time. So uh, let's have a conversation <laughs> about defund police. We've been hearing a lot about that. I, uh, one thing I want to make sure we talk about early on here is the uh, armored rescue vehicle that we have uh, here in Winnipeg. I see that Halifax Council has voted to rescind the purchase of a similar vehicle there. Uh, they were about to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on it. I think here we spent almost $350,000 on this vehicle. And, of course, this is in the wake of uh, the protest, the death of George Floyd. And I guess, is this more a perception uh, situation, that it just the militarization of police doesn't look good, it's unnecessary, uh, because some critics, as I started talking about this, some people have emailed and texted in and, and said, well, listen, the police have to be protected. It's it's dangerous out there. There's gunfire. H- help me understand this issue, and, and where do you come down on it? Okay, well, from what I understand about Halifax, they they had a contract to purchase the armored vehicle, and the city council decided uh, to cancel the contract, and they have diverted those funds or reallocated the funds. Uh, so I think uh, it was about a total of something like $380,000. That was the total price for the armored vehicle. So they've divided that up, and they're giving about just over 50000 to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. They're giving 36000 to the Public Safety Office. And then there's this, the bulk of it, $300,000, is going towards um, fighting anti-black racism. So I'm not entirely sure what, what that means. I don't know if it will go to a community-based organization. Hopefully it won't be just advertising because that has been, there's no evidence to support that ever does anything. Um, but I think they were in a, obviously in a position where they could stop the purchase. Um, Halifax is um, somewhat notorious for um, extremely poor relationship between the local police services there and the black community, long historic um, difficulties there. So I don't think it's merely symbolic because this money, um, if any community organization were to receive $300,000, they will make it last and they will um, absolutely put it to good use. And so I guess I, I, I don't know uh, enough about um, that. I'm not, I'm not an authority on, on Halifax, so I, I, I can't say yet. Mm-hmm. But I, I do approve the – I'm, I'm happy that they were able to, to divert those funds, um, while at the same time I do uphold the necessity for police safety, and especially after recent events there with the active shooter um, I know how what a, 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 a dangerous situation, how traumatized many people must feel in that area. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel that the, the some of this, this is feels like overkill. The, we should really be concerned with the police budget. In a, in a place like Winnipeg, we spend thirty percent of our city budget on the police. 
that is a significant chunk of change. Thirty one third of our city budget goes to policing. And so while I, I, I would never say that the police are not essential, and I do not believe in completely dism- disbanding and eliminating the police, I feel that, that that's quite idealistic. At the same time, I, I do feel that uh, if we are giving 30% of our budget to uh, a, an organization wh- where there's really and expecting them to solve all of our crime issues, then we're not being realistic. We're, the, the police have never stated that their forte is in, um, you know, really preventative efforts. Right. They state pretty clearly in their, in their strategic plan that what they want to do and what, where they have vested most of their energy is in pursuing violent offenders. Mm-hmm. That's what they're trained to do. And they, that's what they're good at. They're good right. at, at pursuing violent offenders. But when it comes to, so they, they have, even in their strategic plan, they have their own divestment strategy. They don't, they don't consider um, working with um, mentally ill street people as part of their core activities. So they already have designs in place to divert some of that work to other organizations. The problem is, is that they're still getting paid to do it. And the other organizations are not receiving any extra funding to take on this work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why I wanted to bring up the Halifax example because they're doing, when we talk defunding the police or defund the police, most people here in Winnipeg and Manitoba feel like that means taking money that the police maybe are getting and diverting it into other areas to deal with the root causes of crime. And that's kind of what they've done instead of buying this uh, vehicle in Halifax. And so let's talk about, and you're kind of, you're, you're leading us down the right road now on, on the conversation because, um, it is obvious that that's not what police are good at and yet i don't think it's any fault to their own it's become their job and i think now we have to look real hard at, at how we change the way things are done correct yeah and there are there are some plans in the works they're working with manitoba justice um, to create legislation uh, that would allow for example what happens when the police pick up someone who is experiencing extreme mental distress, they have, to, they have to take them to an emergency ward and wait with them often for four, you know, what we all have to wait when we go to the emergency ward, five hours sometimes. So they're trying to bring in legislation that would allow them to take them directly to a psychiatric facility for, um, uh, you know, some type of assessment and then to get back on the street doing what, what they do well. Um, and so some of those plans are in the works, and that that's very that that's very good to hear. And there's also ample evidence to suggest that they have improved somewhat in terms of their relationships with some of the community-based organizations. So the police have been evolving, and mm-hmm. their relationship with places like uh, Mama, Mama Wichita, for example, yep. or Bear, Bear Clan. Clan. We had Bear Clan on yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, so they they know how essential the police are to their work, and there's and some many of the women's shelters are are the same. They they would have a very difficult time doing what they do without 
some type of protection. So they're, 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 they're evolving. The issue will be, I think, that it doesn't necessarily have to come, the, the funds don't have to come out of the police budget, but the funds have to manifest somewhere for the type of services that these community-based organizations are often providing on a volunteer basis. And there is, while there isn't a lot of evidence that would suggest that what the police do in terms of their community policing, there isn't evidence to suggest that that's really reducing crime. The crime rates go up and down, and it has very little to do with policing. It has, But there is actual evidence which supports the idea that a lot of the work that the community-based organizations are doing is effective in preventing the very people who would engage in crime from engaging in crime because they have proper housing supports, because they have proper mental health supports, because they have um, supports for their addictions and so forth. So a lot of times the people aren't born bad, you know, they're not, they're not born criminals, but through all sorts of, of different life experiences and exposure to violence and other factors uh, and poverty and desperation, they may become involved in crimes out of economic necessity or to support their addictions and so forth. So we shouldn't expect the police to solve those problems. Um, Even when you look at the, the organization itself, to become a police, you can become a police officer if you're 18 and take a, a 36 week program. So they're not, there's nothing in their training which teaches them how to deal with people who have addictions. They're not psychologists. They, they don't, you know, they're not, they're, they don't have trauma informed training. So they, but there are all types of professionals out there who are quite able to provide those services and who are willing and who are very committed to providing them so much so that they're volunteering and they should be remunerated. And I think we need to shift our ideas about what is essential and, and look at some of the services that these other groups are providing and find the funding to support them. So if, if we even look at that, the police have made some specious, um, you know, uh, purchasing decisions. So in 2015, the Winnipeg police purchased an armored vehicle and it was about the same price as, as the Halifax one, like $340 thousand dollars they have also created a a, you know the specialized tactical team and they've armed officers with military grade patrol carbine firearms and this helicopter and and then talk of purchasing another helicopter so you know some of these capital expenses seem it's it's a it's questionable as to how how essential they are yeah, and and, and, and even if and, and and even if and I'm almost out of time again, Kathleen. I apologize, but okay. but uh, I think if nothing else, right, we need to have a conversation about the expenses, about the budget that you talk about. A third of the Winnipeg budget going to police. Police serve a purpose, absolutely. But I think the conversation needs to happen. I'll give you the final thirty seconds. It's just to say that that the the, the capital expenditures expenditures are are not the real problem. 80 more than uh, I think it's about 85 percent of their budget goes to salaries that that's where the budget is it's in the number of officers 
that are actually on the street in administration. Um, so that that's something that, and I know that they are actually talking about reducing uh, their personnel. Uh, but they, that's, those numbers are not really any different than community-based organizations. All the programs which are offered, approximately 80, 80 to 90 percent of the budget is often mm-hmm. on personnel. Yeah. So the you know people I think that that focusing on the capital expenditures is is a distraction and we need to look at what what it is the police what we actually expect the police to do not expect them to solve all the crimes in the you know in our communities not expect them to pr- um, protect the vulnerable communities from crime because there are better ways of doing that mm-hmm. and 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 find ways um, you know there are there are many other cuts that could be made in our provincial budgets uh, right. that wouldn't involve taking anything away from the police that would free mm-hmm. up money for these programs that are are yeah. totally unnecessary so i hope I hope that's something that our our city yeah. councillors will will focus on. Kathleen, I, I've got to end it there. I've got to go to Diana Foxall, one of our reporters who's uh, on the scene of that protest over by the homeless camp. So Kathleen Buttle, thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Bye. Marion Orr is an independent Winnipeg therapist, and she joins us now on the phone. Marion, good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Thank you for doing this. We were um, I was reading a story this morning saying that a lot of grads, a lot of uh, seniors... Uh, as they graduate this year, our, the survey I saw said 43%, so getting close to half, are deciding to take a, what they call a gap year, take a year off between high school and college or university in large part because of the pandemic. Are you seeing any of that? Uh, well, certainly it's a concern for a lot of graduates because I think they're not uh, certain about how uh, universities and colleges will operate and it's not what they were expecting. So, yeah, a lot of people are looking at alternatives. It is sort of an unusual time, right? I mean, they're not getting to graduate properly, but then even making career decisions, I imagine it's difficult because things are changing so quickly now. Unless you've got a real set plan in your mind, this is what I want to do, I'm going to go and do this, it it must Mm -hmm. be a challenging time for them. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, things are unfolding in a way that we can't anticipate the next step, which is what a lot of planning involves, right? So uh, that creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. um, And so people are looking at what they do have control over. And when you're not sure how universities and colleges are going to uh, conduct their services, you want to make decisions where you feel like you have some choice. Yeah, because it's a big investment, right? Tens of thousands of dollars uh, to to educate after high school. And uh, so much of it will very likely be online for a while. Yeah, I I, I get it. I understand them saying, hey, I'm going to pump the brakes here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's important for graduates to make that decision from a place of uh, their values, though, rather than reacting to some of that anxiousness or nervousness around uh, what is uncertain, you know, really important for them to check in with what are my long-term goals, what's really important to me here, so that they're not just reacting to that uncertainty, but that they're making an informed choice. 
Yeah. I think uh, taking what they call a gap year or even two years, I, it seems to me like it's become more popular. Back and I'm in my mid-50s, back when, uh, you know, I went to high school, graduated, and, and went on to college, I think people saw a gap year as, oh, yeah, they're going to take a gap year, and then it turns into a gap 10 years and, you know, whatever. But I think it's more popular now. I, I don't think – I think it's uh, it's happening more, and I think – it does it make sense for a, a graduate to take a year or two and, and figure things out? Is that a bad thing necessarily? Well, I think it depends on the circumstances. Um, I'm a little bit biased myself because I ended up actually taking a gap year um, – almost 20 years ago now. <laughs> so I'm a little yeah. bit biased and I thought it was a fantastic experience, but I think it really depends on, um, you know, sort of what's the reason for it. And like I said, you know, you don't want to be just pumping the brakes on your education or your, your future plans because of fear of, of the unknown. Um, but really looking at, okay, well, you know, how is this going to help me? Is this something that's actually going to help me move forward to become the kind of person that I want to be? Are there ways that I could make use of that time in a way that's going to fit for me? Or am I just thinking, in black or white or all or nothing thinking. I don't want to just make a decision of I'm going to do school or I'm not going to do school. Maybe there, are, maybe there's an in-between that they haven't considered too. So whether or not it's, it's good or bad, it really depends on the circumstances of the individual, I think, and whether or not it's going to help them in their long-term goals and, and you know, in becoming the kind of person that they want to be. That age range you're looking at you know, really discovering who am I, what is important to me, what are my goals, and so we really want to encourage folks to look into that and to try new things and to explore, and and the path to a long-term career is not the same as it was, you know, as you and I both know, um, you Mm -hmm. know, a long time ago or even a decade ago, so, you know, helping kids to navigate that uncertainty is, uh, is certainly important. Marion, thanks for your help with this. We'll have you on again soon when we have more time, all right? Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a great day. Right now we go down to the RM of Stuart Byrne. Resident Dwayne Tizarski is uh, joining us on the phone now. Dwayne, hello. How are you? Hey, good. Not too bad. Good. Watching, well, uh, watching the sunshine. The sunshine is actually shining out here in uh, Steinbeck here. Just had to run a few errands here and do some stuff. But, uh, yeah, the sun is actually shining in uh, Steinbeck. Well, listen, I hope it's shining above your place, too, uh, in Stuartburn, uh, because you are one of the uh, – help me out here. You're one of the residents who was flooded out of the home, eh? Yeah, I actually live uh, there right on the number 12 highway right at the Rat River Bridge. So we're in the thick of it right there. So – um, seen a lot of floods come through there and stuff like that, but uh, this one here uh, looks like uh, maybe lost the house. Don't know exactly for sure, but it's just not only the house, all the outbuildings, the driveways washed out, the uh, uh, Vita uh, Fire Department, the volunteer fire department there, and everyone from the RM was down and around other places. They did one of those, the Vita Department has one of those uh, aqueducts, aqueducts i guess you call it where they fill them up with water so by the time they got to my place probably within an hour we had the whole dike around the house but uh the current was so strong it breached the dike and uh it was going underneath so they couldn't save it so in my living room uh and kitchen i got about uh, three inches of water and uh look at the crawl space the water's uh take off a couple of the uh, ductworks and she's lapping right at the floors Wow. And when did this, 
When did this happen, Dwayne? Give us a, a sense of the timing on this. Okay. When did it, when did this happen? Okay. Uh, well, I was uh, sitting on my couch on Sunday uh, afternoon, uh, watching, having a little bit of salad, and it started raining. And by Sunday evening, it was raining pretty good. Didn't get too worried because it's actually it was pretty dry up until then. So, you know, not too worried about it. And I know I've lived there now for almost five years, and uh, my folks had that uh, for the 15 years before, roughly. So our whole family, it's been in our family for roughly around 18 to 20 years now, and been there many times on holidays before, and uh, seen many floods. And by uh, 7.30 that night, about an inch and a half of rain that Sunday night, and uh, then the water started pooling inside the dike there a little bit, so I thought, oh, I better go get the sub pumps and the hoses ready, and uh, came out, and uh, 11 o'clock at night, I said, oh, who's going to see me? So I put my Speedos on, and I went out, and I was up to my thighs in water, walking inside the crawl space, or not in the crawl space, inside my dike, and... Uh, setting up sub pumps and hoses and running extension cords and uh who's going to see me the bears and the raccoons out there at that time of night so but lucky well, we had hydro through all that because out here unless you have a generator or properly got a big water pump um if you lose your hydro you're done yeah. none of that stuff's going to work i'll tell you Dwayne, then, you've got a considering that you may have lost your home you've got a, a a great attitude and i'm and i'm yeah. really sorry and i'm really sorry to hear about yeah. your uh, mm-hmm. uh, about your house it, it must be yeah. devastating eh yeah so then yeah it's uh you know it's going to be what it's going to be now it's uh, you threw i basically threw up my hands there that one time and says whatever whatever's going to be is going to be and uh wherever whatever life throws for me now that's uh, going to be it but yeah so it's just not the house it's outbuildings and i feel for my neighbors too across the other side of the river, you cross the bridge, and I got my neighbors there. So if you guys are listening, hey, shout out to uh, all you guys. I know we don't talk that much as we probably should as neighbors, but sometimes maybe this brings us closer together. Yeah. But I know you guys are going through the same stuff as us. And uh, most of us, uh, when I was down at the place taking some of those pictures yesterday from inside the house that I believe you guys have, um um, the hydro was actually down, and uh, we did switch off the master switch the night when the fire department was out, so none of us got shocked and because of electrical stuff. And yesterday, they've actually um, shut off all of our power right from the hydro line, so we're we're dead now. Hmm. So yeah, let me so, ask you. Anyways, yeah, just to let you know, there on yeah. uh, so that would have been Monday morning when I woke up. I've never seen this all the time. My family's lived there, and I believe my neighbor had the same thing. Um, so from Sunday night to Monday morning, when I woke up at 7 o'clock, because I was beat, I never made it to bed till 2 o'clock, setting up sub pumps and everything. I crashed for like four hours, woke up. I woke up. My rain gauges, they were totally full. So that's about six inches. So that was up until Sunday morning. Sunday evening, just before the dikes breached and the fire department came, got another inch of rain in that big storm that was sort of hitting Piney and Vassar, there was that supposed to be a tornado. And if you looked a few miles to the west, to the northwest, there was clear, you know, clear light sky. So we were just on the edge of it. So I'd say at our place over this whole thing, I'd say minimum eight, minimum eight inches to uh, over probably 10 in total. Wow. 
Yeah, and, yeah, and but, I mean, you know, and how how does uh, you know ground can't recover uh, from that much water yeah, in in that yeah. short a period of time? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've talked to some other people down there, some of the politicians and and some of the farmers, and and now you're yeah. a, a homeowner. Um, have you ever? You said you've been there five years, and your parents fifteen years before you. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this as far as flooding is concerned? Because I understand it's been a problem in the past. Have you ever yeah. seen it this bad? I, I've personally never seen it, but I know I've had other neighbors and uh, people who've lived around the area that I am friends with, and uh, they've been flooded out before, or people around more or less that same area. Joining us now, Chuck Davidson, the president and CEO of the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce. Chuck, thanks a lot for coming on here for a couple minutes. I appreciate it. Anytime, anytime, Hal. Hey, so I was reading a story today, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it's a it's a global organization, says that the globe, the world the global recession that is on right now, triggered by the pandemic, is the worst in nearly a century, in almost 100 years. If we don't see a second wave, I'm talk, when I say we, I mean the globe, uh, we'll see economic uh, uh, an economic slowdown of 6%, 7.6% if there is a second wave. And I, I just, as I was reading the story, I'm thinking, you know, not to minimize what we've been through here in Winnipeg and Manitoba, but I do get the sense that maybe we're faring better than other places w- w- economically. W- what do you think? Yeah, and, and, and I would agree with that. And I, and I think that's something that we found early uh, when we did some surveys through the Canadian Chamber uh, early on in this is that the reality is, and again, it goes back to our diversified economy. Because you've got so many different sectors, and a number of sectors haven't been as uh, really impacted by COVID-19 as others. And, and I think that that's been clear as well, that there were a number of businesses that, that haven't had to close their doors. And I think if you look at the number of businesses that actually had to close for any length of time, you're probably looking at somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of, of businesses. And the majority of those being in, obviously, in consumer and retail and hospitality. So those sectors, obviously, a lot more impacted, but on uh, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's on, you know, some production that's been going Going on, there are some sectors that have been able to really weather the storm, which, which of course bodes well for the Manitoba economy in terms of the impact that it's really had on us. Yeah, you know, you look at Alberta and places like that, and it, you see the the booms. And you think, man, that would be great, you know. But then you see the busts, right? And you think, wow, we're lucky to have this economy here in in Winnipeg and Manitoba that just kind of chugs along. Well, that's exactly it. And this is it's similar to what happened in 2008 when we had the economic downturn, which was, you know, impacting specifically in places like Ontario and the manufacturing sector. And you were seeing it in Alberta with the oil sector. Again, you know, while the recession took place and it had a negative impact on a number of economies across Canada, Manitoba, we kind of didn't take part in that as we we like to say back in 2008 because our Mm -hmm. our economy was was kind of flat where we've got agriculture we've got mining we've got forestry we've got a strong manufacturing we've got aerospace and you name the sector and we've got a presence in it so when you have a situation like what's going on right now uh you're not going to be it's it's not going to have an overall impact on the economy so as much as you're seeing in alberta where they've got really that that double whammy of both COVID and then the low price of oil that's been going on for the past year 
you know, you can see the impact that's having on those companies. And then the trickle down it has on, on that supply chain as well has an even bigger impact on, on an Alberta economy than it would in Manitoba. So, you know, to say that Manitoba has, is, is, is doing all right is, is, is fair. Uh, you know, I think there's many people out there that would say, well, Hey, I'm, I'm still not at work or my, my business yeah. is still only at 50%. So there's still some, some real challenges out there, but it's, you know, we haven't we haven't been as impacted, I would suggest, as a lot of other jurisdictions have. And again, as as well, uh, you know, we've done a real good job of you know sort of weathering the storm when it comes to the number of COVID cases as well. When you right. look at our our other neighboring jurisdictions, whether it be Ontario or Quebec, the numbers that they have in comparison to us uh, is a good thing. And so, key to continuing to that rebound is is how do we really rebuild that consumer confidence though. And I think that's going to be critical. And we're starting to see that in the past week and a half as we've opened up as part of phase two. And you're now allowed to, you know, go to a restaurant, even if it's at 50 percent capacity, more people are going to retail. So I think that's, you know, the more success we have with that. And if we can continue to keep those numbers low, more and more people are going to get more comfortable being able to go out and spend more money and support those local businesses to, you know, get us back to, you know, pre-COVID as quickly as we can. Yeah, and not to, and again, not to minimize what we've been through and many people continue to struggle in many different ways. But I just had that feeling as I was reading that story and, and feeling like, boy, you know, maybe we're, it can always be worse, right? Maybe we're, we're lucky that we're, we're here. And our, as you point out, our COVID-19 numbers have been low compared to other provinces, other jurisdictions. And, and so, you know, counter lucky stars, right? And, and how is consumer confidence out there a week or, as you said, a week and a half into phase two? Is it, uh, was there some pent up demand early or has it been sort of a slow grow? I think, you know, I think it's really been that slow grow. Um, and and I, and I think you're seeing, you know, whether it's in the hospitality industry and again, and, you know, you're seeing it in gyms as well. And those, some of those industries mm-hmm. that have been closed for the better part of the last three months is they're, is they're making sure that they're doing it the right way. And so that they're opening slow so they've got all those precautions in place and making sure that they're going to do so in an environment that's going to be safe to both their employees, but also their consumers, because that's really critical to this, is you want people to come into your establishment and know that you're taking those precautions, that you're looking after the physical distancing, that you're, you know, making sure that you've got the PPE that's needed to make sure that people are, you know, comfortable coming in. And I think the more that you see that, um, and the more the businesses, and, I'll, and I applaud businesses in this province because they have they have stepped up in a huge way. And I can tell you that I talk to businesses on a daily basis, and it's a challenge, specifically in a number of rural communities. And if you, you know, I was having some discussions with some business owners in Swan River today. They haven't had any cases of COVID-19 in their community, but all the businesses are taking the necessary precautions that they know that they need to take, and it's an additional cost to them. And the concern they have is that in some of these communities, and again, I've, I've commented on this in the past, is that some of the public is too comfortable thinking, well, we haven't had any cases. And, you know, everyone, uh, and, you know, you mentioned before I came on that uh, Dr. Rusin will do his press conference tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Well, the majority of Manitobans are watching that on a daily basis, and they're looking at those numbers saying, hey, we only got eight active cases in Manitoba. Everything must be good. So everyone's sort of an armchair public health officer right now saying, well, yeah. you know, I think it's fair to kind of go out without actually knowing the details. Business is following the rules. We need to make sure that the public is is, is continuing to follow the rules as well to make sure that we don't have that second wave, which would have a more negative impact uh, on not only the Manitoba but the Canadian economy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, the numbers are low. Yes, they are, but they're low because we've been doing it right and we need to keep doing it right and, and follow the advice 
of these public health officials. Hey, Chuck, thanks a lot for this. Uh, appreciate the conversation as always. Anytime, Hal. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.